Did you guys hear that? It just said the meeting's being recorded. Buzzkill. <laughs> All right, everybody. Number 34, the Rose and Rhetoric Podcast. Joining me as always, my charming co-host. Jose Cuervo. Four underscores between those two words. So a very exciting episode today. We'll begin our discussion. Of course, we're only ever beginning the discussion in some sense of the beginning of infinity by David Deutsch. Um, a great book, a book that I enjoyed that I think Joe's enjoying as well. Um, this book kind of has something like a cult following, I would say, definitely a, a book that's become popular and uh, seems to have a lot of impact on people that have read it. So Joe and I will be talking about that book a little bit today. We plan on doing a number of episodes about this book, uh, covering a little bit of it every single time. And um, along the way, I think um, combining or rather connecting some of the ideas in this book to some of the ideas we've talked about on our previous episodes. But Joe, before we get to that, as always, we must begin with a recap of your week. Yeah, it's been a, unfortunately, it's been a little bit of a cloudy and rainy week in Portland. Um, the Blazers are down 2-1 in the playoffs right now, which is also kind of a bummer. Right. But I managed to escape um, the cloudy Portland, Oregon for Leavenworth, Washington. Sunny, sunny Washington State. Sunny, sunny Washington State. Drove in late last night, and uh, I'll be here for the weekend. How far are you from Portland? Uh, it's about a five-hour drive. Okay, so the, the weather is can be pretty different between the two locations. Yeah, it's definitely more dry here, less cloudy, more sunny. It's nice. I, I recommend it. I haven't had a chance to explore because I just got here last night and I had to set up for the podcast this morning. But absolutely. Uh, maybe next week I'll have a better uh, review of Leavenworth. I um, have never been to Washington State and it's on my, my list of places to go. Um, we'll see one day I'll get out there. I want to go to like Seattle and Portland and, oh, I've been to Portland before. I visited you there one time. That's true. Yeah. That's true. I, I will say Portland lives up to the reputation. If you like it, you'll like it. If you don't like it, you won't like it. But, uh, I thought it was a fun time. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was true to its colors, mostly white. No, um, it was, uh, it, it was a fun place to go, fun place to visit. And, uh, that was when I saw the back of a U-Haul busted my knee open. That was a lot of fun. Oh yeah, that was a that's a big fall. Yeah, that was like a three foot fall. What I'll what I'll say about you hauls is this one, and Joe, I know you'll agree with me on this. You definitely want to get that rebate. You definitely okay. want to get the gasoline rebate. And I'll tell you something else. They're gonna point out that rebate about ten times during the rental procedure. So they're telling you you want to get that rebate, and they're not lying to you. You want to get that gasoline rebate, hundred percent. And another lesson I learned from U haul is that if you ever get a parking ticket in a U haul. Um, despite popular belief, you actually do have to pay it. Yeah. <laughs> you can't just pretend like it didn't happen. Yeah. Um, otherwise, yeah, it's, it's not good. The, the yeah. fees just get higher. It, it just gets higher. And, and that, that's a good phenomena. You know, Joe, when we were growing up a little bit younger, these answer websites, Quora, Yahoo Answers, whatever, you know, normally the problem solving procedure went something like the following encounter an adverse situation go to one of these websites and scroll until you found the answer that you liked yep. and then convince yourself that's the right answer. <laughs> that's normally what problem solving means, right? It's that's, that's still how I solve the majority of my problems. Absolutely. Just keep scrolling until you find what you want to hear. Yeah. And then that becomes what you do and uh, the process repeats itself and um, normally works out, but sometimes when it comes to legal fees, et cetera, not the best course of action. Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a, a process. It's always improving. Yeah, 
Well, that sounds exciting. I'm looking forward to hearing about Washington State uh, next episode. Uh, looks, looks like a beautiful place. I, I'd like to get up there one time. I had a couple of things I wanted to open up with Joe before we get to BOI, and I think it's things that our, our audience wants to hear about. First off, I think all of us have been trolled majorly for our whole lives with something that I realized yesterday. And it's in these, in these PDF documents of books that you might find online, occasionally you'll find a PDF page that says something to the following of this page intentionally left blank. Mm. It's a troll because if the page is not blank, the words are on the page. They're telling right, you. Right. The page is blank. It's actually not blank. I realized this last night, got some good feedback from it. And I wanted to make that known to our audience that we have been trolled forever. How many years by the PDF community, uh, reading that over and over again. Um, kind of like a slap in the face, I thought. Yeah. I mean, why, why not just leave the, page truly blank something to write on i mean i don't know why they don't do that either or, or, or say this page is intentionally almost left blank yes this page is intentionally mostly blank yes would be appropriate um the second thing i realized and i don't say this lightly uh but i have to call out jake from state farm and you know i don't like doing this you know i really don't like doing this but i, I have to do this on a number of commercials i've seen with jake from state farm he or rather I should say his customers are under the impression that he gave them some kind of special deal and they try to pay him back in some way. We've all have seen these, the Maya Markdown, the Parker promo, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. As best I can tell, Jake never gives these gifts back to the customers for the mm -hmm. commercial end. He's keeping these gifts. Now he explains to them that there is in fact no special pricing given to these people he still keeps the gift. And I, I don't like that. I think Jake should be more deliberate in giving these gifts back to those people who were clearly misguided when they gave them to him in the first place. Right. They, they, they gave it to him under a false premise, right? Yes. And, and he keeps it. So I would like to see a, a series of commercials from State Farm where Jake goes to these people and he gives him back the gifts that he received in full and explains to them, you know, as he does in the commercial, there is no markdown, but making them understand it and then requiring that they take back the gifts. I think until that happens, State Farm, I'm a little uneasy with right now. I, I can be honest with you, I'm a little uneasy with State Farm at the moment. Sounds like, a, sounds like we have some, some tweets coming out towards uh, State Farm. Well, I, if, if they don't get that together, I don't see what choice I have. I, I'm not gonna remain quiet as uh, this injustice perpetuates on the airwaves. So I think it requires some, some vigilance and I will be the voice of reason as always. The vigilante. The vigilante and um, okay. Well, those things out of the way, Joe, let's, let's hop into the meat of this episode. Let's hop into the meat of let's what we're talking about today. We're talking today about the beginning of infinity. Again, a book by David Deutsch, scientist, philosopher. That's the one. And uh, here at another book that we may get to at some point called The Fabric of Reality. It also looks pretty interesting as well. But this book is much more about the, the nature of human progress. And um, I think I, I have read the book. Joe's reading it right now. Um, I will say I think this is a book people should definitely buy, definitely read. And so we're going to spend the next few episodes kind of going over parts of this book and, and explaining the, the parts in the book, but also trying, trying to connect that to um, why it's important, why it matters, et cetera, et cetera. So, Joe, I thought we would start with you. I know that... Um, I know that you've been taking, you're doing some some diligent note taking with these books. Let's open it up so far with with your with your impressions so far, 
and um, some of the key ideas that stick out to you right away at the beginning part of the book that you so far have have covered. Sure. So I'm I'm three chapters deep at this point, and uh, I mean the book it's it's dense, but it, it, it's interesting. It's not like a textbook in the sense that it's a drag to read it and you're like falling asleep as you go through it. But it is have a lot of information, a lot of new ways of looking at things. And just a few notes here from the first few chapters. Um, he came up with this idea, or he talks about this concept of fabulism, which is one that I've been thinking about. And fabulism is essentially that there are no authoritative sources of knowledge, nor any reliable means of justifying ideas as being true or probable. So I think this applies a lot to our lives and throughout humanity. Like back in the day, people would like, there would be a new religion that came out, like a new mythology, like a Greek mythology that would just state something. And then this church now becomes this authority figure that provides knowledge for everyone in the system. And we essentially just reiterated that process throughout history. Like it used to be um, religion or these mythology back in the day. And now we're starting to have new authoritative figures. Um, specifically, I think that science is becoming one of those authoritative figures. And I say science because uh, science in the true sense is like actually good and helpful at getting knowledge. But I think that in today's society, we have turned science into this form of propaganda where, you know, if you're not for science, you're, you're against it. You know, if it, if you don't believe the science as some journalist states it, then you're anti-science. And this concept of science and this idea of science has become this, this authority figure. And I think that a lot of people are falling for that. And especially like we, when we talked with, um, Jacob Stadganga, he brought to light the importance of how most scientific studies aren't even reproducible. In fact, like less than 50% of them are. So to say that a study says this and this is science, I mean, there's a 50% chance that that could be wrong. So I, I really like this concept of fabulism. And I really like how he, uh, David Deutsch in this case, linked that to a phrase or a motto that was used by the Royal Society which is Nellius in verba, which means take no one's word for it. And again, I think this, this really just reinforces this idea of not believing what other people say and only getting your knowledge from internally, from what you see, from what you hear, from what your senses provide you. And uh, I, I think that's important for today's society and living in today's world. What, what do you think about that? So let me, I would say, <laughs> The, the last part about our senses, that, that that would be empiricism, which is what mm -hmm. he argues against in, in the first chapter as well. I think that's fair. Where, where he ends up getting with, with, with science is this idea that it's, it, it's, a, it's a process that we use to generate good explanations and mm -hmm. we can define kind of the criteria for a good explanation. And that at, at, at some level, every explanation will have shortcomings but that it can improve upon the previous explanation by capturing the same ability to, you know, describe the, the data that existed before, and then also to encapsulate whatever shortcoming the previous idea had. And so you went from Newtonian mechanics to relativity by, by in, in a sense, not by just adding to Newton's idea, but, re, but replacing it entirely with a better idea. And the reason you would say that the idea is better 
is because it's able to account for the phenomena that Newton was able to describe, but also the phenomena that Newton was unable to describe. And so we have a, we, we have a, a, a process by producing good explanations with conjecture. We, we create ideas that are, hard to that, that are hard to vary without changing, in a sense, the predictions of the conjecture. And then we measure that conjecture to some and, form of criticism. Why don't you describe what conjecture is? For yeah. So conjecture is just, I would say, forming an idea, formulating an idea, and then testing that idea out in the world to determine how well it corresponds with reality as it exists. And so a, an, an, an important idea with David Deutsch is the idea of realism, which kind of simply is the idea that there is a real world that we are interacting with. And as a result, when we form ideas about what that world is, we have some way of actually measuring and determining, do our ideas correspond with what we're observing? And I think this is an important idea for people to have because there, there's maybe a notion that, and David talks about this as well, that science is, is just the idea of, of improving predictions and that we're, there, there's a quote in one of the chapters about how science is in the process of just chasing decimals for some prediction that we have. And what, what David says is actually, no, that's not what science is. Science is about forming new ideas that in some cases are radically different than the ideas that are before them. Quantum mechanics is radically different in Newtonian mechanics and relativity is radically different in Newtonian mechanics as well. And so it isn't just that you're able to produce more decimals for whatever prediction you're having. That, that, that is true. Relativity does make better predictions in Newtonian mechanics. But what makes it a new idea is not only does it make better, or let me say a better idea, it's not only that it makes better predictions, but that it replaces, in a sense, the, the shortcomings of Newton's idea. That is a different kind of criticism. It isn't just calculating some kind of calculation procedures. It's criticizing the idea. It is making a statement about the universe as it exists that is fundamentally different than the framework that Newton described. And the same would be true of, of, uh, of, of Schrodinger when, uh, and other people that were involved with QM at the beginning. They were making statements about the world that were, that were different ideas than Newton. It wasn't just making a more precise measurement or, or you know, adding some kind of a correction factor. It was a radically different idea. And so from that perspective, we have an idea that science is not um, some kind of procedural way of measuring data and fitting lines to data, but it, it is about forming ideas about the universe. And then right. the process of science is improving upon those ideas through criticism. So I found that to be really a, a very good way of describing science in a way that I think people understand. And in a way, it's, it's a very human explanation because when we think about what people do, we think about people being creative, about people thinking we're not just robots measuring little data points, but we're forming ideas in our head. And then we are, we are in a sense, putting those ideas out into the world in order to determine how they correspond with reality. Yeah, like the, the true science, there's, there's, a, there's a base level of creativity needed in order to advance it. And, right. Um, which is a critique of the idea of, of inductionism that, you know, yes. how do we form ideas? Well, we start with some sample of measurements and then we somehow generalize. And David says, in fact, it's not what we do. What we do is we form ideas. Of course, the, the, the data informs the ideas that we form. We don't just ignore data. That would be silly. But in fact, what we're doing as humans is we are, we are seeking better explanations. There's a, we are forming ideas that are better than the ones before them. And in, in cases such as, again, relativity and QM are radically different than the ideas proposed by, by Newton. And in fact, it should go, it should, I should just say as well, I mean, Q, 
quantum mechanics relativity are also different from each other. They make radically different statements about the universe as well. And um, in fact, that comes into play later on in the book when he talks about the multiverse, which I don't feel like getting into. I couldn't get into, I don't understand anything about it. But, um, yeah, but it, is, it is important to understand that, again, it's the idea that you're replacing an idea with a better idea is an idea about science that isn't, I think, often stressed enough and that David very much forces out to say, like, this is what science is. And um, yes. I think it leaves interesting points later on in the book. And I like, I like David Deutsch's definition of science or his idea of it. But, but what I'm saying is that I think it's different than what we're using it as today. Like right. His definition of science is it, it needs to be testable. It has to mm -hmm. be, it, which is a defining characteristic of the scientific method. Yeah. And I think nowadays we've just bastardized that term science so much to the point that we, we need to use fabulism as we look at it. Like look at social sciences. Like these aren't really real sciences. They're not really testable. Like a lot of psychology is not testable. A lot of some of these things, political science, not super yeah. testable. And people just treat it as a dogma. And I think that's what we need to be careful of. But I agree. As, and as, and as David Deutsch has described it, yeah. it's a valid one. And I, I really like that one. And I, I think to, to add on to what you just said about what makes those other sciences hard is that it's hard to form an idea in those fields that's hard to make invariable. That when you make a prediction in, or a theory in physics, you can be very precise in how you define Know, what the theory is saying and so in, in yeah. a sense you you commit yourself to some kind of statement basically um you know he gives the example of uh you know why is mythology not a good explanation well because you have all these extra characteristics in it that you could change it's you know does the god have long hair or short hair does he blue eyes or red eyes right i mean you have all these yeah. variables you could change and a good explanation you don't have those kind of things you have a very limited set of statements or variables or whatever you want to call it and if you were to change any one of those even slightly, you would expect a totally different outcome that would then be, in a sense, a different idea that you would have to pass. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the mythology, because that was another another topic in chapter three, um, the anthropocentric. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Anthropocentric point of view, which yep. means that it's centered on human beings and more broadly on people. So this is where you start getting explanations that involve entities um, with intentions and human-like characteristics, like spirits and gods, like Greek mythology and that type of thing, and how this is just was just a major fallacy of how humans would obtain knowledge um, for a big part of human history up until the Enlightenment period. And yeah, I mean, and part of the Enlightenment was taking that anthropocentric point of view. And then factoring in knowledge that's expressed entirely in terms of impersonal entities, like in terms of like numbers or geometry or shapes. And Euclid was a big pioneer in that field, as David Deutsch describes it. And I mean, it seems obvious now, like, why would we assume our knowledge comes from like made up creatures that are kind of like us, that are like superhuman immortals, as opposed to some of these like more reliable, like apathetic concepts like geometry right and you know again the idea that um when you have a, a mythology as your basis how would you really go about testing it you know that's always the question too it's so you're you're saying that there's a deity that's mad at you because you did something 
how do you know that they're mad at you? Maybe they're happy that you did something. I mean, there's just all these ways of it's, it's, there's, there's no, there's no way of, of, of pegging down the explanation to a specific test. When you say, when Newton says, you know, this is the law of gravity, this is what it is. You can go and measure it. And it's, it's an equation that, that's precise. And either that equation is true or it is wrong, but it's mm -hmm. definitive. There's no subjectivity. There's no, well, maybe it was a, maybe it was a bad day for gravity. You know, it, it was feeling kind of tired. There's no way to wiggle out of it. It's either true or it's wrong. And so you, it, you, you, you get tied into a specific prediction, into a specific statement about reality that can then be checked. And uh, one of the things that makes mythology bad is that it's, there's, there's too many, just, you know, however many characters, you know, and there's always ways of varying the characters. And it's unclear how you would really go about testing any of those because there's too many things to change. There's, it, it's unnecessary in, in a sense um, to explain uh, the world. I think he used the example of the seasons, I think, right. and uh, through Greek mythology, like some Greek God, like depending how the God felt, I think during a certain part of the year, like someone had to go down to Hades and during another yep. part, someone didn't. And that, that's what controlled the, the, uh, the seasons on the earth. And yep. like you said, that's, you, you can't test it. So it's by nature, that's a, a bad explanation because you, you can't test it. Well, one thing that I liked about that part and what was interesting is I, I do, it, it's, it's interesting to think how we are connected to our, our heritage as humans, because even though the Greeks were putting around in, 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 the, in the mythology sense of bad explanations, mm -hmm. it's interesting that they were trying to explain it. In other words, the idea that they thought here's a phenomenon that's happening that we need to explain is an interesting idea in and of itself. Like yeah. my dog, I don't think really feels need to explain anything. It's the food comes out, the water is there, it goes around. It doesn't really need to explain anything. Humans, even though we've made, we've made bad explanations, that we have this instinct for trying to understand things is a point that is, is I think, central to the point that David Deutsch is making. But we can see it throughout history and we can see how that process has itself evolved from mythology to science. But that it was always there in some form, this need to actually, I don't want to just understand that the season changed. I want to know why it changed. Mm -hmm. And that, that drive to me is interesting to think about. And it, we, we, we see examples of it in mythology and other religions that this that is what that is. It's we're trying to ask why, and which I think is in, in some sense, always a noble you know, pursuit basically. And it's interesting that uh, we've been doing it, I guess, for as long as we've been human. I mean, yeah, I, I think that David Deutsch would, would uh, applaud that use of conjecture if you could call it that i think you yeah. could right yeah absolutely it's just a, a explanation for something yeah. i think he would criticize it because like you said it's not testable and he also uh talked about how it this concept of the principle of mediocrity yeah and how that ties into this athro anthropocentric point of view where back in the day before the enlightenment everyone thought that humans were super important so all their conjectured beliefs were based around that but uh now it, it seems like the leading theory is that humans really aren't that significant in the grand scheme of things i think he just called i think at one point he called it like chemical scum on the earth's surface <laughs> right which which to, to his point i think he was actually in a, in a sense challenging that mindset that there is something special about people in our ability to be constructors that is in a, in a sense our ability to conjecture and criticize we are in a sense we are special and we are different than other animals 
again, like my dog isn't going around thinking about the shortcomings of Newtonian mechanics and, or something like that. Um, and so there, the, the sense that our planet is mediocre and that our sun is mediocre and all those other things I think are definitely true. But in a, a point that David makes, I think is actually kind of an inspiring message is that if we're willing to pay attention to what people actually are, we are special. Where, why are we special? Because our ability to be universal constructors, our ability to use knowledge to achieve, in theory, anything that is allowed by the laws of physics. That mm -hmm. is something that is special. A star cannot do that. A rock cannot do that. A dog cannot do that. A person can. So it is different. And it's important to remember that we're different because um, I, I feel that that sometimes is missed. I think uh, the, the principle of mediocrity, I agree with David here, I think sometimes goes too far in uh, describing people as just being another animal. You're not another animal. We are, we, are other, we are animals, but we are a special kind, a universal constructor that has this ability that is worth, remember, that is, that is worth remembering and worth thinking about. Yeah. I, uh, to go along with that, another example that he gave was uh, of how like, humans are impactful in the universe. Yeah. Was he was talking about how just out in space, like in the very thinnest parts of the outer universe where there's like nothing, like the temperature... The temperature really, because there's so much background radiation in the universe that you right. can't really get below a certain temperature. Mm -hmm. Like absolute zero is like negative 273 Celsius, but the universe itself can only get to negative 270. Yeah. However, yeah. by the virtue of humans and humans doing what humans do, yeah. the coldest place in the entire universe is on Earth because scientists have been able to make super extreme vacuums where they've been able to achieve temperatures or just fractions of a degree above absolute zero. So... That, I, that to me is pretty incredible that out of the entire universe, the coldest yep. place on, in it is found well, on in, Earth. In, in some lab somewhere, this College. handful of people that made this probably a little box. I don't know how big the actual chamber was, but I mean, yeah, it is, it is worth remembering that. I mean, that was a feat that humans did. And how did we do it? By making ideas about how to cool things down, about how to create vacuums, about how to... You know, I think they like somehow use lasers to cool things down. I don't, it's all beyond me, but oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. somebody, somebody put an idea, probably multiple people really put ideas out that then led to these discoveries that then led to this. And so um, this knowledge base that humans have allowed us to do something that would not have happened on its own. It's, it's, it's a, it's a deliberate um, departure from the state of normal affairs in the universe that took place on this planet. So there was one part in the first three chapters that I was a little bit confused on, maybe not confused, but not entirely sold on. So right. Help me out with that. Um, so in chapter three, he has like two big statements that he drops. Um, one of which is that problems are inevitable. Oh, right. In other words, like as you, as you go down this path of knowledge, you're going to come up with problems, like things that don't make sense, things that don't work out. The more you learn, you kind of make more problems over time. But he follows it up follows it up with another big statement which is problems are soluble right so all our problems are soluble is what he says and that's kind of like the beginning of infinity right like it's just you the more you learn the more problems you create every problem soluble the more of those problems the more problems you create it, it's a self-propagating uh, chain but he he also the the part i have trouble resolving is how that is consistent with right, let me back up like imagine like a an ant or something like the <laughs> ant has no idea that we exist right they have right. no idea what a human is they have no idea what any of this is speak for yourself i'm good with the ants and they respect me 
<laughs> yeah, Jimmy the Ant Man. But it's like there's just another level, like almost like another dimension of consciousness between us and the ant. Like, how do, can we say that there's not an extra dimension of consciousness between us and another beings that we're just completely unaware of? And he says in, in one of the chapters, he says that we are not limited in knowledge in the sense that a chimpanzee cannot understand quantum physics. But I'm like, what if we are to the champ chimpanzees, then why is there not another species that is of the same relationship to us? Yeah, I, I think the answer there would basically be that because we have the ability to understand, it's so like right now, if our, if our brain has some kind of shortcoming, nothing prevents us from making a technology that expands the power of our brain. And so then the process can continue. So whatever that's like, that's like a, an analytical improvement. It's not like a creative improvement. Oh, I, th I think that it could be a creative improvement. I mean, it's hard to know until it actually happens. But I would say there's nothing that forbids us from whether it's a limit of our brain size or brain power or speed of computation or whatever else it is, that nothing, nothing prevents us from understanding that problem. And then from that problem, proposing solutions for why we couldn't improve it beyond whatever our current limitations may be. Yeah, like, uh, well, what he was saying that Edison came up with a, a phrase that um, something or success is 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. Right. And he says that that perspiration is achieved through computers. Right. But that 1% inspiration, how do we know that we as humans are not limited in that regard? In that yeah, and I, I think so he later on, is the easy part. I agree with that. Right, right. That. That's the easy part. The, the hard part is the inspiration part. And so the like the, the argument would be something to the effect of if we can make grounds on understanding what creativity is that would in a sense be kind of the first step in understanding what creativity is mm -hmm. we could then understand the limitations that are imposed on it by you know say the physical makeup of our brain whatever that may be and then we could improve those physical limitations and nothing in other words the argument from david isn't the human brain as it currently exists can, can understand any and all phenomena with any and all precision. It's because we're on this path of improvement that there's nothing that eventually we couldn't figure out as we keep on providing better explanations based on previous explanations. And so if you can put yourself on that trajectory, then whatever problem you encounter is insoluble because it would involve something taking place inside of a universe governed by laws of physics that we can further and further understand and then further and further apply to whatever limitation we're encountering. So like once a species uh, obtains this ability of conjecture, then there are no limitations to the knowledge. And criticism. You have to have, uh, yeah, have uh, yeah the, the, I guess it would be the, the culture in a sense between conjecture yeah. and criticism that allows you to improve. In other words, because I think this is an important part too. It isn't as if, you know, it, I, we wouldn't make much progress or certainly not very quickly if we just made random guesses all the time and never did anything about the random guesses. Never we need a way of comparing exactly. We need a way of, of comparing them to the previous theory to see which one's actually better. And if, if we can show us some kind of improvement, then we can replace the old one with the new one. And so, even though it's the beginning of infinity by definition, that you're always far from infinity, it's still progress. And I think that's an important key to that. We it's on an infinite ladder, but you're still higher than the rung before you or below you. So you're you're, mm -hmm. you're climbing up, but you're always infinitely more to go. And so, the 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 premise is basically, you know, anything that takes place inside of our universe is happening because it's allowed by 
the laws of physics, whatever they may be, because we're on a path as universal contractors of understanding what those rules are, there's no limitation that, uh, that we can uh, continue to further improve our understanding and application of those, of those laws. Like in theory, we can make a star. I mean, we, we couldn't do that right yeah. now because we would have no way of assimilating enough mass and to do it. But I mean, yeah, we, yeah. we could, nothing would prevent us from doing it in theory because we have, we understand how gravity and stars work. It's within the laws of physics. Exactly. Yeah, he, he has a, he had another quote. It was matter, energy, matter, energy, and evidence are the only requirements for open-ended knowledge creation. I think he like what describes like a spaceship out that's like floating through space and like gathering yeah. hydrogen as it flies through to make, is it, if, if people are listening to this, you could use hydrogen to build any other atom by just, by just fusion. I mean, that's where all the atoms come from anyway. So you just use hydrogen to make helium, to make lithium, to make, what's the fourth yeah. one, barium, whatever it is, so on and so forth. And so even with boron. simple starting yeah. boron, I think you're right. Whatever the, um, whatever the starting material is, given knowledge, energy, et cetera, you can, you can literally build anything that is allowed inside of the, the universe. It just takes so, energy, right? And, and knowledge. And knowledge is really the key thing because it allows, with knowledge, as we grow knowledge, um, mm-hmm. we, can, we can apply our knowledge of how, to, of how to, it's basically like an instruction manual. Okay, we now have knowledge of how to build a star. Now we can build one. Given like, what you're saying, that we have sufficient energy in order to do so. But the knowledge is important too, because, and I think he makes this point and, you know, related to other shows that talked about this book as well. But a, a common theme is that just having the knowledge isn't going to be necessarily enough because you still need, you know, there's, there's like, if I told somebody on an island, here's what you need to do in order to build, like build a airplane to fly the island. It's like, well, I don't have a lathe, so it's going to be hard for me to do that. Like you, you, you need some material, but the knowledge is important as well, because um, with knowledge, you can actually in some cases, produce the material that you need to then build what you need to then get off. It's always iterative. I mean, how did we build the first airplane? Eventually, we didn't have anything. We had sticks and stones. Yeah. But through a process of knowledge, we were able to eventually build airplanes. So that's the lineage. That's the beginning of infinity. Yeah, I like that. And then I, there's, a, there's a Feynman quote in one of these chapters I really liked. I think it was in chapter three, where Feynman was talking about, I don't know, humans in general. He said that we keep learning more about how not to fool ourselves. Right. And I thought that was real powerful because that talks about like the process of improving things is like yeah. back in the day, we would fool ourselves with these mythologies, with, with these dogmas, et cetera. And science is effective. It's, it's essentially just another definition for science, how to not fool ourselves. Yeah. And I, I like that frame of looking at it. I do too. And, and it, it immediately opens up the, path for continuously improving because we can always not fool ourselves better there's always yeah. a shortcoming to whatever idea that we currently have it can always be improved upon and so as long as we're pursuing knowledge by making explanations by testing explanations again as long as we have the, the matter and energy to actually do it you know then we're we are in good shape and um i i think i don't know what chapter the chapter on, on optimism is is that maybe four past chapter three past chapter three does he define optimism in in chapter three when he gives the problems or soluble problems are inevitable uh i didn't i don't remember it so the definition i, I it builds off what you're talking about now the, the definition he gives is that optimism states that all problems are caused by lack of knowledge and it's interesting to think why would that definition of optimism be consistent with his principle so far 
And the argument would be something to, something to the effect of an optimist is somebody with a positive disposition towards the future. If you believe that all problems are soluble and that problems are inevitable, but also that problems are soluble, then an optimist would basically be somebody who believes that all evil stems from lack of knowledge and that because we're universal contractors, we can continuously improve our knowledge and thus continuously erode whatever evil remains on this infinite you know, journey towards, uh, towards improvement. So interesting ideas. I think problems are inevitable. I definitely agree with problems are soluble. I would say from the basis of universal constructor, it makes sense to me. The idea that all problems or that all evils come from lack of knowledge, that one I'm a little more hesitant on. Uh, all, evils? all evils come from lack of knowledge. And I always think that's interesting. I, I, I kind of believe that, but I'm still thinking about it. That's where I'll leave that one for now. I'm still thinking about that one. Well, let me, uh, this might shed some light on that. Um, he was talking about, he was talking about morality and arrogance in mm -hmm. chapter three. And he at one point said that morality is supposed to uh, refer only to the internal organization of chemical scums. So in other words, he's just saying that in the grand scheme of the universe, morality doesn't really mean anything. It's just like this thing that humans kind of do. Right. And that, in fact, um, we didn't have enough arrogance, like pre-enlightenment. And the reason he's saying that is that uh, we weren't arrogant enough to assume that that uh, the world was fundamentally incomprehensible to them. Or in other words, they believe that the world wasn't fundamentally comprehensible so right. they started making these solutions but yeah. if they had a more arrogant approach it that would not be the case but the bigger point is this whole idea of like morality this whole idea of what is right and wrong is just made up concepts by this chemical scum like they're in in the grand scheme of things in the universe there is no right or wrong like it's kind of a stupid question to ask someone if is this right is this wrong is this evil is this good I, i'm not sure that there's any productivity in asking those types of questions I would, I would disagree with that. I would say it's certainly true that to our son, it's not, if we all blow ourselves to pieces, our, our, our son's not going to like take the day off or something. It doesn't really care about us. But I would say the, the, the thing is that even if only people care about it, to me, that that's enough. I mean, I, I care enough about humanity in a sense to care about what we all think as people. And so I don't need the moon to care about murder, to know that we should care about murder. I would say that it's not, it's, it's, it's limited to us because we created it for sure, but that the moon doesn't care about it. I don't mean the moon doesn't care about anything. The moon isn't, isn't thinking, yeah. it's not caring. So I, I would say that our, our focus on morality, I think should be focused on, on humans. And I don't know that we should worry that much about, I didn't hear, I would agree with you. I don't know that we should worry that much about the idea of the, the, the universal perspective on what's happening on earth, I think that we should care because it impacts us. I want to live in a world where murder isn't allowed. I benefit. I'm sure you agree with that. I, 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 like, I like not being murdered every now and then. And so even if the, uh, the moon doesn't care, I certainly do. And um, I think when we're talking about morality, again, this comes up later on in the book too, but even in that, in, in discussing ethics and morality, there, there is still a process in which we can apply uh, making good explanations for things and that it's good explanations that allow us to understand uh, how one system of treating people can be improved upon through that process of conjecture and criticism. And so it is uniquely human in the sense that 
I don't, I mean, animals don't really have morals that we do. Um, but I don't know that that diminishes its value because it's only for us anyways. We're not yeah. concerned with the moon's opinion on what we're, on how we treat each other. So I, I found this, this uh, book, Beginning of Infinity, through Naval, as we've discussed before. Yeah. And there's another author that Naval really likes. I think he's like a coach of Naval's or something. His name is Kapil Gupta. And he, he talks about this specifically in a lot of detail. And it's like, because he, he addresses like these questions that people ask a lot of times, like, is it right to give to the poor? Is it right to give to this homeless person? Is it right or wrong to work hard? Is it right or wrong to live not wrong? Or not to live in a way like a sloth way? Right. He just rejects all these questions. He says that they're just, they're bad questions because there is no right or wrong. It, it's everyone's kind of built on their own path. And as long as you're on your path and you're seeking truth, like what is really right and what is not conceptualized by society, what is not a societal construct, uh, it doesn't matter what's right or wrong. It doesn't matter if you work hard or not, because at the end of the day, you're programmed a certain way, you're going to get somewhere. And the sooner you realize your own personal truth and path, the better it doesn't matter like you can go up to some authority figure and be like hey is it is it right for me to be angry at this situation it's like it, it doesn't matter because you're going to get angry at the situations you're going to get angry at it's not up to you and and that's 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 where the, the idea of right and wrong gets a little fuzzier but i mean you brought up a good example of like murder like i think that's unambiguously wrong or at least and I, I don't know, is that a societal definition or is that, is, is it a construct? Is it not? I don't know. Those are. Yeah. There's a, pieces, pieces together. there's a good chapter uh, in, in BOI where he talks about the reality of abstractions that I think it's to a lot of this, the idea that it's an idea, so it doesn't matter. And so, well, I, in, in, in a way ideas do matter and they are real. It's like, if they weren't real, what would they be? It's, it's real in a sense that we have the idea. And so what I would say is, there, there's a lot to unpack with, with the, the, the Naval teacher. Well, let me just kind of leave it with this. I, I think the most important thing anybody can do on a daily basis that's not, you know, it's the obvious, you know, shit. Don't be a thief or a murderer. But I think yeah. more, more practical, more applicable is this idea of always being willing to criticize what you currently believe. Like that is the place to start, right? And sure. it, it isn't just enough to criticize, but also to always be looking for better explanations. And so, you know, to me, that still puts you on the path that David Deutsch is talking about. And when I look at, you know, the moment somebody becomes close-minded to some kind of bigotry, like that's, in, in, in a sense, that's worse than just having the bigotry beforehand. Because we, we probably all have bigotries of some sort or another, no one's born perfect. But if you, but if you teach yourself to have an open mind, then any, any bigotry that you have, there is potential for that to change through some kind of argument or through some kind of criticism. It's when you close that off that the problem really sets in because now there's no hope that you ever change your mind. And so yeah. for but, me- but how, is something, how is something yeah. like bigotry like testable, for example? Yeah, well, so something like, let's say the idea that um, what would be a good, a good bigotry? Um, something like, um, what would be i'm trying to think of one that's not like in, in vogue right now uh something like like uh labradors like, are the best kind of dog or something that or i was even thinking of something more like um 
there's a lot of ones to give. I'm trying to think of a, of a, of a good one. Um, something, something like you can judge somebody based off of their parents or something like that. Like, oh, like the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And you can test that by saying, well, do some bad parents have good kids? Yes. Oh, okay. So that idea can be improved by saying that we should just judge people based on their individual merits. You don't have to judge them based off of their parents' mistakes. And so, Whoa. you know, that, that would be testable because you could look and say, well, their dad was a murderer. Are they going to be a murderer? Well, there's no guarantee. We shouldn't just assume that they are, you know, this is like uh, the um, minority report, although it's a little bit different, but but I would say, but I, I mean, that to me would be an important kind of bigotry to overcome in that. No, um, but it would be a, it would be a, a spectrum though, right? It wouldn't be like every single murder parent would have a murderer child. Right. But maybe if you analyze a thousand different murderer parents, you see a slight bias that the child would be a murderer. Sure. But that would still improve upon the idea that it's guaranteed. So if your, if your bigotry was that it's yeah. determined that bad parents only it's ever guaranteed. have bad kids, that idea could be improved upon. And in a, in a testable way. And so I think, I think those kind of ideas uh, are important because I, I mean, I would say a lot, of, a lot of history of morality is just learning to treat people as individuals, that that was like a big improvement. And um, to the extent that we commit ourselves to do that is good. And I would say that that is uh, an improvement because it's, it's, it's testable basically. But um, and and would also I think again be be a way of, of not just better in the sense of better theory but also you know treating somebody better like if I meet a meet, meet a kid whose parents were both in prison and I treat him with respect versus not that would be better I'm not making an assumption I'm not doing something along those lines so I would I would say in those cases it is it is better and you can make a judgment based off of the criteria in David Butch's uh, book. Um, where I think it gets fuzzy is when you have um, uh, people that are equally committed and is coming to different outcomes. But again, it's how committed are you to keeping an open mind? How committed are you to criticism? So on and so forth. I think you're on the right track. And uh, I would say for most people, myself included, that's the harder challenge is always committing yourself to an open mind, committing yourself to be wrong, accepting when you are wrong, improving the theory to be, you know, to be better, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, 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 that's great framework to, uh, to base things on. And I know that we're running low on time, but yeah, the interesting thing about this book is it's, it's, it is, David Deutsch is a physicist, correct? Right. But it's kind of almost like a philosophical what I like about it is it really helps you create framework for like what is knowable, like what knowledge is, like what is reasonable to believe, what is not reasonable to believe. I, I think that is super helpful for just forming your own psyche, for forming your yeah. own basis, for comparing and looking at the world. So I, I think that's like what I like the most about this so yeah. far. And uh, I mean, before we close out, I want to get your take on what you think what, let me rephrase that. Why do you think there's a cult following behind this book? Yeah, that's a great question. I think first and foremost, David is an exceptional writer. I think the book, oh, if, great, if you consider good. what this book accomplishes, 
and yet it's written in a popular science format, by which I mean that the popular audience could read the book and understand it. You don't, you don't have to have a PhD to understand this book. Um, that is an impressive feat. And I think just the writing alone warrants, um, warrants that following. I think the style the book is written in where he has a summary and vocabulary and terminology is always nice. I think the, the, the style is important. But most importantly, I think the message is one that is inspiring in a legitimate way. It isn't inspiring in the sense that um, the world is whatever you want it to be. And that's, you know, there, there, there's no fantasy in, in a sense with this book. It's inspiring, but in a legitimate way that actually makes sense. And I think an inspiring and legitimate message is extremely important right now. We face a lot of problems and there's nobody doubts that. And to have somebody come along and say, yes, true, but we can figure them out. That is important to hear. And I would say the most important takeaway from beginning of infinity is that it really sets up a way for humans to engage in a long-term culture of escaping zero-sum situations. That we can always grow, we can always improve, we can always spread, whether that be knowledge or wealth or just the number of people. There's no limit. There's uh, the, the sky is the limit in the sense that there's just, there's nowhere to go. I'm sorry, there's everywhere to go. And so I think that is a unique message right now, actually. And I think it's also the true message. I think it's also the correct message. And I think that as time goes on, my hope is that more people take this book seriously and think, you know what, this actually is a framework for long-term success. We actually can do this. And it doesn't require anything fantasiful or, or anything you know, mystical. It's just paying attention to what we've already been doing and committing ourselves to continuing the best parts of that tradition. That's all that's required. And so for the people who read this book and take away that message, it's a very hard message to walk away from. And it's, it's a really hard message to turn your back on once you've been exposed to it. So I think it's a good message. I, I agree with it. And uh, my hope is that other people who read this book will also come to agree with the message as well. Yeah, that's, that's great. I totally agree with that. Let's give our album of the week. We're, we're doing our new thing where we have somebody read it off air. So, but the album people can look forward to this week is going to be uh, Random Access Memories by Daft Punk, which I would argue, Joe, is an appropriate album of the week for this one because it's kind of, you know, space age and techno and, you know, technology and that kind of thing. So it's, it's a nice Beautiful. album in European. It's, it's, it's a very nice, a very nice fit for uh, our opening discussion of the beginning of Infinity. And um, also a social media shout out, also, you know, appropriate for the context of what we're talking about is uh, Johnny Kim, who Joel and I have talked about on the podcast before. This is, uh, I don't know, Captain America. I mean, this guy, Navy SEAL astronaut doctor. I mean, that's ridiculous. Um, talk about, you know, we're all beginning on Infinity. Johnny Kim's a little bit further along than the rest of us. You know, we're all, we all got a long way to go. Johnny Kim a little bit closer, I think. Just a little, just, just, just a smidgen closer. Um, so our shout out goes to him uh, for an innocence being kind of a living example of somebody who was taking on the challenge of, I would say, always improving. I mean, that goes without saying, but um, seems very committed in a way to, to, to a message. I just, I'm mean, through his actions. I don't know him, obviously I don't know him, but it seems anybody that's dedicating themselves to these kind of missions believes in some kind of long-term success for humanity. And uh, for that reason, I think it's an appropriate shout out for this week's social media shout out. 
Great. Yeah. Like you said, incredible person. Like most people don't even achieve one of those things in their lifetimes. And he's done three and he's like, what, 30? 30. And he's also good looking. So I don't even know where the, you know, where's the justice? I don't know. Uh, yeah. Very impressive. He's, he's been on a number of shows, maybe one down this one, uh, but uh, always a treat to listen to. And uh, just what a, what a guy, what a guy, Johnny Kim, shout out goes to you. And album of the week, random access memories by Daft Punk. Um, closing thoughts, Joe, before we close out the episode. I thought this was a, a good a good conversation on this book. I think that there's going to be a lot more to come from it. Um, I think we opened a lot of threads that we might need to revisit in future episodes. Sure. And uh, I mean, I still got like 300 pages left of the book, so I'm excited. Yes, for anybody who wants a, a very in-depth chapter by chapter analysis of this book check out brett hall we, we talked about brett hall last time I, I watched brett hall before this episode undoubtedly some of the things that he said i'm just repeating right now though no doubt about it so check out brett hall great show on this book and then also i, I did i came across another podcast i think there are a few more to talk about this book but i i, I let you listen to this one and uh they're called made you think the made the made you think podcast and uh I didn't agree with all their takeaways from, from the book or all of the kind of the uh, analogies or examples that they gave, but it was a good discussion nonetheless. And um, I, I listened to them. And so undoubtedly some of their ideas are, are making their way on this episode as well. And, um, but if you want to hear more discussion about the book, and again, I would say, you know, Brett Hall, that chapter by chapter analysis, be sure to check out his channel and um, also the Made You Think podcast as well. But yeah. I think that will do it, Joe. Unless you want to add anything else. Yeah, big, big thanks to Brett. He's been uh, yeah. a big inspiration for this process. Yeah. So got to give him a shout out. Got you, got you, got you. Got to get it on. Got to get it on. All right, everybody. Well, that was a fun one. Uh, thank you for joining us. Follow us on Twitter at Rose underscore rhetoric. Website www.rosesandrhetoric.com. Follow Joe on Instagram and Twitter at Jose4 underscore Squarevo. And also Rose Rhetoric has run Instagram as well, which is also Rose's underscore rhetoric. So follow us, like, share, subscribe, you know the deal. We'll see you next time.